Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing Podcast Series. My name is Mark Herman Lynch and I am a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Ryan Stern leads an illuminating discussion with author Robert Maisels on an amazing array of topics ranging from neoliberal politics to harlequin romances to continental philosophers to jazz. Maisel's 2019 book, Karmalov's Ankle, is featured with an in-depth discussion on narrative form and experimentalism in writing. This interview is chock full of wonderful insights on everything from social justice movements to philosophical traditions, while simultaneously demonstrating why traditional creative writing pedagogy fails sometimes and how important it is to challenge hegemonic narrative structures. Tea House is honored to be podcasting to you from Treaty 7 territory, we specifically acknowledge the Blackfoot Confederacy comprising the Siksika, Bikani, the Gainai First Nations, as well as the Suttana First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We also acknowledge the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. My name is Ryan Stern, and I am an MA student and research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. My guest today is Robert Maisels. Robert is a true polymath of the written word. He is a poet, a Governor General award-winning translator, a playwright, a former professor in the University of Calgary's creative writing program, and the author of five novels. He has graciously joined us today to talk about his most recent, Karlamov's Ankle, a Utopian Fantasy. Robert, welcome to Tea House Talks. Thank you. So I wanted to start today with the first words you encounter in the book, the title, Karlamov's Ankle, a Utopian Fantasy. So as a bit of background to any of our listeners who may be unfamiliar, during the 1972 Summit Series, a hockey series between Canada and the Soviet Union, Canadian player Bobby Clark was asked to give Soviet star Valery Karlamov a tap on the ankle. Clark two-handed Karlamov, breaking his ankle. My question to you is, what is it about this moment that warranted such a presence in your book? Well, I think it, it, it happened at a time when uh, there was a beginning or a, there, there was a shift in what, how Canadians think of themselves. And from the idea or the self-image of the polite, friendly, kind people to own the podium, which was the, you know, the later slogan of the Olympic team. And I think that sh- that that shift. I was a big hockey fan when I was a kid. I was born in Montreal, so I followed the Canadians, and I, I I don't think I ever missed a Saturday night game, you know. And after that series with so the series with the Russians was a very big thing. It was the first contact really between the Soviets and 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 Canada on on the ice. We we never really played them before, so we had no idea how good they were and. They were very good. They were really impressive and interesting. Their, their style, their system, their method was different from the, the they didn't skate in, in lines, forward lines, they, they skated in circles. And so you never knew who was on the, in front of the net, who was in the back and the puck kept moving around. So it was really interesting to watch. And instead of learning from it and going, oh boy, uh, we've underestimated these people, 
the reaction was to become brutal, right? And and after that, I stopped watching hockey. I, I couldn't watch it anymore. I, I was so disappointed in the attitude and generally in the media and everywhere else, it was rah, 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 great. We beat them. It doesn't matter how. So for me, it's a symbol of a different way of looking at the world and uh, at ourselves. And that moment is kind of a symbolic moment that demonstrates that. It's also the contact with the other, you know, because at the time the Russians were, you know, like monsters or some unknown thing. And so I found that a, a kind of interesting metaphor. And also it gave me a title that's hard to pronounce and that my publishers <laughs> didn't like, <laughs> which I have a habit of doing. Well, I, I mean, that kind of leads into the next question I had, which was what drove you to write Carla Moss Ankle? From what mm. you're saying, it kind of seems to me that this contact with the other, the, the Canadians emerging into brutality, you can see that theme consistently, uh, particularly with the way you represent uh, Calgary resident and former Prime Minister Stephen Harper and his right. willingness to let America take the lead in how we deal with the other. So could, could you right. speak to the impetus? Yeah, I mean, I think there were there were, there were a number of common sort of or elements that drove me to write. One of them was this the the international and national situation, which was getting worse in so many ways, especially with. It got much worse after I finished this. I mean, while I was writing, Trump came uh, came in in the states, so so the thing got worse and worse. So that impetus to sort of find some way to to resist that or to and the other thing was the teaching. I was teaching for seven years at the university, and I found I, I had to write something that broke every single rule that I was supposed to be teaching when I was teaching. So you mentioned that you're working with Larissa Lai, so you will understand uh, the, her approach, which is similar in many ways. I mean, and so I wanted to, uh, I wanted to break all these kinds of strict rules that I had been taught as a, as a writer myself. And I had to quit teaching to do it because I had to be uh, be able to write without thinking of my students and worrying what would they think when I, they see this, you know, or what would ca Canadian literary community think when they see this. I always tell my students when I was teaching, never show your mother what you're doing because it will create, you know, self-censorship. So this book was a way for me to break out of a lot of rigid, the, the literary hand-lit kind of way of looking at the world, the prizes, the, the teaching of Canadian, uh, the ac academy, and the way a creative writing is treated in the academy. There are a lot of elements that went in there. And also part of the impetus was to break down the barrier between uh, literature or art and the real world. In other words, that's why I was looking at this, the situation at the time I was writing and not using references or having a character that stands in for Stephen Harper. Let Stephen Harper himself be there, right? Uh, none of my characters are invented. They're all real people or real characters I've taken from somewhere else. So it's a kind of 
I call it a literary environmentalism. It's like a, we have enough characters in literature. We don't need to create any more new ones. So I just use the ones that are un, are not used. You know, they've been used once and thrown away like a plastic bag. So I say, let's see if we can use them again. So all these things played in together, you know. But but in terms of the the politics of it, yeah, it was it, I was. It was a really bad time. Not that it's that much better now, but <laughs> it was a time when I felt like angry, angry at, at, at a lot of the things I saw around. Yeah, I, I mean, you definitely see that in the book, particularly with the character Blue and his encounter mm. in the shop and the systemic racism that he faces and him actually name checking Black Lives Matter. So I'm curious, mm. because we've seen that tradition from the Harper years to the Trudeau years, We've seen Trump and not necessarily a total repudiation of Trump, but he's out. And we saw all of the activity and social movements that came out of those years. So do you feel at this point that it's more hopeful than at the time that you're writing Carla Moss Ankle? a good question and a difficult question to answer. Fundamentally, no. I do not have more hope. Fundamentally. However... <laughs> Because I've lived long enough, I mean, I was I was there in the '60s, right? When we thought everything was going to be totally changed, right? <laughs> we imagined, and we were sorely disappointed. And all that really, I mean, I saw, I participated in movements that were, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, right? And and I saw, I saw revolutionary movements. I saw a lot of. I participated in a lot of actions and a lot of things that that are much were much bigger than the movements we see today. But I don't want to say that these movements are nothing or like the old veteran says, you know, oh, you kids don't understand and you'll see. I do think there's they are signs, great signs of hopefulness, right? And I think I think they they could be openings if they evolve in certain ways and they and they they root themselves in their communities and you know things develop in certain ways but they're also very fragile and so i don't and i i've seen many many times in history where a, a villain like trump who's easy to hate is replaced by a villain like biden because biden is just the old villain that was there before trump but the United States of America was not a, a, a paradise before Trump that has been, you know, that Trump tried to destroy. The United States has been a nightmare since its creation. I mean, it's based on slavery. That's, that's what the United States, the United States is the country that dropped the atomic bomb, which no other country, you know, we're all worried about North Korea and Iran and all, but the Americans are the ones we should worry about because they have no hesitation about doing this to other people, right? As long as generally they're not white. So, I mean, I, I see these movements come and go historically through time, and I think they're always positive, okay? But I have no illusions that they can't be uh, crushed or in some way twisted, right? There's a lot of effort going into silencing them quietly, diverting their attention. Look how much time and effort all these kids who were, who were demonstrating put into the elections in, in the States. 
that's a huge amount of work going door to door and doing all this work. And then after the election, they go, where did, what happens to all this work? Does it create local community work? Uh, does, do they then have community organizations and uh, more and more people participating so that the, the elections are really not the main goal of a movement? The election is just a tactical moment where you got to get rid of Trump because he's a huge impediment to you know doing the work we need to do. But the work that needs to be done is local work. It's it's community work. It's grassroots work. Right? So it, to the extent that they're able to shift, and some of them are shifting and trying to shift, you don't hear about it that much in the media because the media covers the demonstrations and the elections. They don't cover the day-to-day, -day, oh, these people got together and opened daycare or opened a clinic or uh, have a feed, feed the kids at school. Things that, that in the past take a, a movement like the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers did all those things. You never heard about that. What you heard about was the, the guns and the, and the fights with the cops and the trials, right? But I saw the Black Panthers on the ground. When I was when I was and I went there and I I went with them around their neighborhood where they were collecting food from all the grocery stores to, to feed the kids and I saw their daycare you know stuff like that and and yet they were they were destroyed so it shows you that these things are fragile and they're not but they keep coming back and they improve in some ways and they. I don't believe in history as a you know gradual slope any more than I believe in the novel as a gradual slope towards climax and uh, denouement. So in that sense, I'm not totally without hope, but I'm also very uh, very cynical about the about the planet itself surviving under the conditions that we're we're in now. How how quickly can we fix these things? It's very difficult. Even somebody like David Suzuki, who's been dedicating his whole life towards the environment and talking about these things 30 years ago, says himself he's he's not optimistic about the situation, right? And and in a way, the less optimistic we are and the more despaired we are, the better, because then we're more likely to, you know, when people have optimism, for me, it's 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 dangerous. <laughs> in the sense that you you can you think you've got it, it's going to be okay, and you don't have to do anything drastic or immediate in that sense. No, I, I think that's a very fair statement. I, I guess my question on that would be: you use the term cynicism in your book. You actually refer to Diogenes as an original. Yes. Sense. And so I'd be curious to know: do you view your work as the work of a cynic, and to what purpose? Do you see writing this book as an act of resistance? Yeah, I think I think I have no illusions about the power of writing. Uh, I remember when I was studying in in, uh, in in Montreal, I was still a student, and I wrote a paper, and which had some more radical sort of games I was playing in the form. And my teacher, who was very smart, she she wrote as a comment. This is like many years ago, writing is not enough. <laughs> and uh, it was sort of a jolt to me because there I was thinking while I'm writing this, and I have this, I do have a side of me that is like this idealism where I think 
if we could find the right sentence, it would transform the world. <laughs> you find that correct, right sentence where, which it comes from the, I guess it comes from the, the Jewish tradition where the co concept of the Bible is that it's the name of God. The entire Bible is in the, is the name of God. And it's just that the letters are not in the right order to get the name. So if you can re reorganize all the letters and get it right, you will have the name of God and immediately will have paradise on earth. Everything will be transformed. So writers, part of us always thinks that if I could just find that right phrase, that right line, that right sentence, everything will be fixed. Of course, it takes less radical uh, positions like, you know, I'm going to teach people something. I don't write to teach people anything because I don't think writers know more as a writer that I know more than anyone else. A plumber knows just as much as I do about the world and life. It's just that he's doing something useful <laughs> where I'm not. <laughs> so I, I have a very humble, but I still feel that doing this work that is more, I see it more as dismantling things than, than constructing an ideal world, right? I see it as dismantling the things that keep us from thinking and, and struggling and language and the structure of the stories we tell ourselves are critical in that sense, right? And so yeah, it is an act of, of resistance. The same way as, do you know Herman Melville's story, uh, Bartleby the Scrivener? Have you ever read that? I've never actually read it. Okay, so this story is about a guy who's, who, who's a clerk who's working for a lawyer on Wall Street in New York. And his job is just to copy contracts out. And he's a scrivener, that's what he does. One day he stops, he just won't do it. And his boss, and the stories are told from the point of view of the boss, tries to figure out what's the matter because he, he, he was very good at his job and he likes the guy and he doesn't want to fire him. And his resistance consists of saying, I prefer not to. So every time the the, the boss says, well, can't you write this or copy this or come into my office and let's look at this car. He says, I prefer not to. And he won't move. He won't leave. He just stands there in the, in the office and he resists through not writing, in a, through refusing to write. That was at the time when Melville was so disappointed by the reception of Moby Dick, which was panned and uh, totally ignored, that he felt he, he couldn't write the way they wanted him to write. They wanted him to write adventure stories, you know, which is what he had done before Moby Dick, sea, sea stories with pirates and all this. And he wanted to write something different. And so, so the same way as Bartleby doesn't want to write those legal contracts that they make him write over and over and over again. That's the way can, Canadian literature works. We're writing the same stories over and over and over again. And so Bartleby says no, and he and he refuses to do it. And then he's is in the end, of course. Well, I'll let you read it. You'll you'll see when, when you read it how it ends. It doesn't end well, but it, it's an act of resistance, right? And sometimes an act of resistance. So in that sense, yes, this book is an act of resistance. No sentences. No 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 proper grammar. No distinction between genres. 
Is it poetry? Is it prose? Is it essay? Is it, you know, nonfiction? Uh, all these things are, are dismantled in that sense, even down to the sentence, you know, as a, a grammatically correct structure. I was actually going to ask you about that. I, I mean, uh, I called it a novel at the beginning, uh, but it's so poetic. And it also includes a brief one-act play. As you said, it's got nonfiction. Just out of curiosity, if you had to take a stab at it, would you be able to classify it? I refuse to classify it. I mean, some people have will call what I'm doing, uh, it will, they'll call it experimental fiction. I actually had written some passages of this as poems and they exist exactly the same text but not, but reorganized in these blocks of, of text right so so i don't like to i don't want to classify it because i don't believe that those distinctions stand up any longer i, I don't believe they should i mean they didn't even stand up when when they first started writing the novel the idea of these separate things of poetry and and I think in the university where you're studying you're still your creative writing workshops are still divided into poetry fiction nonfiction. when I was teaching there I refused those distinctions I said we're going to have a writing workshop so some of the students are writing poems some of them are writing fiction and they're influencing each other and there's real exchange of what writing is. So, and even Stéphane Mallarmé, who's like a modernist French poet, you know, one of the first was asked, what's the difference between prose and poetry? And he said, there is no such thing as prose. Well, in other words, for him, all writing has to be attention to the form and careful and this idea. So poets who have very small audience, and therefore feel neglected, will get some kind of consolation from saying, well, prose writers are a mess, like they don't really pay attention to language or, or to the style and all this, and they feel a bit better about it. And the prose writers look at the poets and say, oh, these guys, they write these lines and these, then nobody is reading it anyway. So what's the, so they have this distinctions, which I don't recognize, right? So you ask me what how would i define the genre i would refuse to define because genre in itself is the problem it's the idea that we have to stick to a genre you don't really need to do that you can you can do what you like imagine if you go into your workshop and you produce a poem one day, one week and what's going to happen in your workshop is your is your teacher or the other students are going to say whoa this doesn't belong here <laughs> you know, so that would be an act of resistance. And I mean, grammar is also, these are rules, right? Grammar are rules. So the subject, the verb, the object. So I always used to say when I was teaching, the subject is male, the verb is what the male does, and the object is the woman. So the subject is what the male does to the woman. And that's the structure of the sentence we're taught. And, and let's see if we can produce a sentence that doesn't do that, that doesn't create hierarchy of subject object, and that sees verbs rather than verb. You know, let's see if we can dismantle what the grammar has done to our heads, you know, the same way 
as what the structure of, of stories has done to our heads. The structure that they teach you where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end, a rising you know, tension to crisis, and then a denouement, that's a male orgasm structure. Right? It's like you're, you're going up, 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 and, and then whose life actually looks like that? You know what I mean? Does your life actually proceed in this way? Are you going there? Or even does one of your, does the day look like this? When you get up in the morning to when you go to bed at night, do you have this kind of curve? No, it, it, many, it goes all over the place. So what I'm writing, well, this book is realism. What they're writing is not realism because nobody's life looks like that. The problem is if we keep reading those stories that are structured that way, and we keep watching movies and, and television that are structured that way with a beginning, middle, and an end and denouement, we, we look at ourselves and our own lives and we're thinking, oh, there's something wrong with me because my life doesn't look like this. What's wrong with my life? And we try to force ourselves to reproduce that structure. And that's a big problem in the world. That, that's the source of the, of the problem right there. We're, we're imitating our stories in our lives. The stories are not imitating our lives. They don't look anything like our lives, but we've seen it so often and been trained to do it. It's not natural. The storytelling isn't like that natu necessarily naturally. I was listening to some First Nations telling a, a story, this storyteller telling an oral story and she was bouncing around in time. And I brought her into my class and she told her story. And so the story is about her grandfather and what happens to him. And he turns into a dog at one point, but then occasionally she says, and she comes and says, these days, I, what's happening to me is that, and then she goes back. So she seems to be digressing from her story. And then she, when she was done, I asked my students to go home and write it down. So just write the story down that she told you. And they all came back with that structure, which they imposed on her story. I said, well, what about when she digressed? She said, well, I took that out because she was digressing. I said, why is digression wrong? What's the, you know, what's the problem with, digression is the most interesting thing we have in a, in a story. So that's how I, uh, and I couldn't do that properly when I was teaching because I was doing what I'm doing now is talking to people and trying to explain it. And when you do that, you can't do it. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't do it at the same time as you're defending it or explaining it. So I had to quit school teaching in order to write this novel. I, I mean, that leads very well into my next question. What was the process of writing this novel? For anybody who's listening, who may not be familiar, it has periods, but they don't necessarily come at the end of the sentence or at the mm -hmm. end of the word. Uh, they split, they divide, they sever. Uh, mm. Additionally, letters are capitalized or lowercase uh, and not in a consistent manner. So when you went to actually approach writing this book, did you actually have to retrain yourself and unlearn all of those yeah. conventions from pedagogy? Yeah, that's a very good, I mean, I found it very difficult at first to do that because we're, and you know, the, the more you, you, you studied, the worst it is. <laughs> I, I prefer, I would prefer teaching students who've never written anything before they're corrupted by all the rules and the, the techniques that were taught. And when, yeah, it was extremely difficult. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it, a lot of the beginning of the writing was breaking away, uh, breaking sentences, writing a sentence thing, 
okay, how do I destroy this sentence, right? And and working the, working and working on very small texts for hours and hours to begin to feel free enough to do that. By the end, or you know, at some point, I was free of it. I felt like I could do it forever, and it was no problem. But I did feel a lot of constraints and pressure at first, and found it very difficult. Even the language, the tone of the language. In, in Canadian literature, we rarely see even cursing. The level of the, of the language has to be the Margaret Atwood level, right? This kind of high tone that is just a little bit smarter than the reader, but makes the reader feel smart because he or she can understand it, you know, and read through it. But it's all polite. And when you go to collect your governor general's award, everybody's wearing suits and 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 they're talking in this very elegant and nobody says, oh f this, right? Uh in 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 the ceremonies. So all that adds up as a kind of pressure on on the writers, you know, on, on and you have these people that's not your mother, but they're all standing there behind you when you're trying to write. And it's very difficult to uh, get away from it, to, to break free of it. Plus, I mean, the characters, so I had characters, I could have made them revolutionaries, or I could have made them like the Black Lives Matter people who are, who nobody is going to say, oh, these are terrible people, or, yeah, I mean, nobody progressive or liberal or whatever is going to look at the, at this because they're, uh, they're, they're peace-loving, they, they don't use violence, they, they're articulate, but my characters, they do heroin, <laughs> right, and their goal is killing people, so that's a, ta that's just not right, you can't do that, and that's part of why I, uh, I look at it that way, because I had to break even the this kind of the the good people the good guys and the bad guys you know kind of idea of of the world and say who are we to judge <laughs> the these kids and and what they're doing those are all real people the the characters in you know in the gang there the and they they're people I knew all of which but one and is dead <laughs> they you know because they overdosed and they they died in various violent ways but they have never had the right to speak and tell their stories because nobody's gonna they don't write novels <laughs> so they are invisible in our in our society they don't exist so that was part of my motivation of using them right yeah there was a lot that you said in the novel about speaking for others and giving voice to the voiceless i'd be curious as to the inverse of that who are you trying to speak to as the author? That's a question which I've always hated. And I'll tell you what, because if you, if you aim at a certain audience, you're going to talk down to, to your audience. I try to write for someone who's, someone who's smarter than I am. So I'm trying to write something, someone who knows everything I know and who wants to have a conversation and I'm writing for that person. Does he or she exist? That's not my problem. I created, I create that reader when I write the novel. If we don't do that, then we don't create new readers. Uh, the readers we address are, are already, they've already read this and, and why would they read it again? 
even if the names are different or the, or the context is slightly different. So yeah, and the question, who's your audience, has always served to dumb down the uh, writing. And writing is a little bit like medicine. You've got general practitioners who see a lot of patients every day, and you have mainstream writers who are bestsellers and who sell hundreds and thousands of copies of their books. Then you have specialists who are what I would say the equivalent of literary fiction or something or poetry in, in some kinds of poetry, which are more difficult, read by fewer people. So the specialist sees less patients, but treats a more complex situation, let's say. Then you have in medicine researchers who never treat a single patient. They, they work in a lab and they try to figure out things to solve problems that eventually the general practitioner uses in his or her work. And it's the same thing with writers. If I sit in the lab and I invent a sentence that, you know, I get rid of grammar, I guarantee you that in 20 years from now, everybody will be writing like that. Or it'll, you know, if you look at television now, you see a lot of these shifts in time in, you know, movies or in, in TV series where all of a sudden you're back 20 years before and then you're back there and you're for, if they did this even 30 years ago, they, the people wouldn't watch it. They'd go get a headache. They'd say, I can't, what, what the hell, where's this? You know, now we're all used to doing it. But when that was being done in writing 50 years ago, nobody was reading that except a couple of other writers who were then using it in a honed down way. And gradually it, seeps into the mainstream and affects it in some way. So I'm not worried about the fact that no one wants to read by this book. <laughs> um, it, okay, I say that occasionally I may, I may feel lonely, but really I refuse to, to buckle under. And anyway, I wouldn't be able to. I knew a guy who was writing uh, romances for Harlequin to put his way through college. So when he was writing these, he would get a, a plot, they would provide him with a plot, they would provide him with characters and some phrases that they needed to see in the, in the book and the, the length down to the word, okay? Because the book had to be shipped in boxes and they wanted it, the books to fit, let's say, I don't know, 20 books in one box. So the books had to fit in there. If, his, if one of the books was too big or too small, it made the box more difficult and they would have to arrange to, so it would be too expensive to send them. So he, the box was determining the length of the novel, okay, that he was writing. <laughs> and so I thought, you know, I should do this because I could make money with this and then I could pay my way through college and all this. And my teacher said to me, you wouldn't be able to do it because there would be a level of irony you, you wouldn't be able to hold back some kind of ironic you know, gaze in, in the text. And your readers, because the readers of Harlequin romances are not stupid, they would see that, they would feel it, and they would get very upset with you, and they wouldn't like your books. So you would fail as a Harlequin romance writer, right? <laughs> so I'm doomed <laughs> to write this. <laughs> I really like the notion of a researcher leading into a general practitioner. 
So if the writer is the general practitioner, you can see some of your researchers, the ones who have influenced your work, they're present in the book. You've made space for other voices through these quotes. Yeah. They, mm. Parables from Lao Tzu, or some of the aphorisms of Nietzsche, or even just including uh, Maurice Blanchot himself. So I was wondering if you could expand upon your relationship as a writer to critical theory. Right. I, I studied critical theory and philosophy for quite a while. And I still read, that's where I get most of my, so I, I'm very familiar with post-structuralist thinking and with what they call the continental philosophy. And so I know these, and I also am very familiar with Talmudic philosophy, which is the Jewish tradition, which they don't treat in, in the academy as philosophy, they treat it as religion, but it's philosophy much more than Plato, Plato's religion, because Plato is just metaphysical thinker. I mean, he, he believes in the abstract forms. That, and so that's why he, to me, he's like religious. He's not, he's not that interesting. I much prefer the cynics because they're realistic. They don't believe in anything, right? They just, and so are the Taoists. The Taoists, the Taoists have no God, right? They, they don't believe in God. They, they have this kind of totally open-ended way of thinking. And the post-structuralists are linked to that. They share that. So I see these joining alternative ways of, of looking at the world, alternative way, philosophies and alternative, alternative political thought. So yeah, these are have been very important to me. Derrida, uh, Deleuze especially, right? And Foucault and the feminist theorists who follow that afterwards and pushed it beyond there. They've all had an influence on me. And one of the reasons why I, I threw in those quotes is because that's another thing you're not supposed to do in a novel. You're not supposed to put your research flat right out there. It's like footnotes in a, in a novel. One of my novels, I do have footnotes in, in, in uh, one of my previous novels. And so it's in the same way as if you, if you have a character that actually is based on some, uh, some, somebody else or somebody in history or some other fictional character, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to hide that fact. So all these techniques of fiction are actually manipulation. They're dishonest. They're lying. They're cheating. They're, they're tricking the reader into feeling something. So I like to, I'm looking for a way to write where I'm not cheating or tricking the reader into it. I'm just allowing the reader to work with me to create affect and feelings and, and ideas. So yeah, those are, it's true that those ideas are, are part of how I got where I, I am in terms of my thinking. A lot of that thinking came after Marx, after the Marxist, after the failure of the 68 rebellions in France and across the world, then the need to rethink how we were approaching the world and change and, and things like that had a, has a, a big influence on my, on my work, yeah, which I like to recognize. And I'm always reading while I'm writing. For me, a novel if you, or a book, it doesn't matter what you call it, is um, like, like doing a thesis, okay? In other words, you've got to read a lot of stuff and study a lot of stuff 
uh, to, to be able to produce the thesis. And the only difference between creative writers and academic writers who, who are doing their degree is that the creative writer does all the same research that the, the academic writer does and reads all the work and all this, but then that's only the beginning. Then the creative writer has to write, begins to do the more. The other guy's finished already, but you've just begun. So in a way, this idea that you'll find in English departments, I don't know if you still have it there. They, it was like that when I was there, where the creative writing is seen as this sort of lower category of not as prestigious as, as you know, the academic thesis graduate. To me, I, I just reverse it. You know, I just say the only purpose of, to me of reading all these books that they make you read is because it helps with your writing. You know, we're not doing it just so that we can talk about those books. So we're one step ahead of them. And the other thing I would say about, I don't know how they do it now, but when I was there, they, they demanded that the creative writing students doing a thesis had to do all the, the exams in the, the PhD, had to do the exams on all the different categories of pick a poetry. And so they had to read a hundred books of poetry and then write an exam on poetry, right? That, that kind of way. And, and then when they finished that, they could write their novel or their poetry or whatever. So I proposed in the department that we do it differently with the creative writing students. We, we look at the students' work, what the students are trying to do or thinking about in their work. Then we build a, a list of 100 books around that. Some of them may be not even literature. They may be philosophy. Like I couldn't write this book without reading, you know, Taoism or studying uh, uh, all these other texts. And I needed those. So, but for me to read, you know, I don't know, um, Margaret Atwood is not useful for this particular project. It's not useful. So making me read all these books to say, I know the genre or I know the, uh, that field is not useful for a, a creative writing. So I wanted to build around each student, their own list that they then have to do. And they could be examined on in the same way as the other students are examined. So it's a different approach. And one of the problems for me of creative writing is that it, it's entered the academy. Before it wasn't even a subject at all, it was a lot easier to write a freer. But now that we're in the academy with our creative writers, they're being destroyed by these academics who are having them into and not allowing them to to break out. So if you have a good prof like Larissa Lai or you know other profs like that, they will help you survive that experience, right? But it, 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 does, it, it shouldn't be a, a painful, difficult experience. It should be more useful, I think. So yeah, philosophy is a part of what I'm doing, right? Yeah, from my perspective, coming to this interview, I had actually been studying a genealogy of minority writing and reading Deleuze and Gotari, Frederick Nietzsche, right. Maurice Blanchot. So right. it's really interesting for me to read Carla Moss Ankle and right. see the lines of flight away from the majority language exactly. that yeah. Deleuze was speaking of, which yeah. is, it's a phenomenal example of how a creative writer can actually internalize these concepts and enact them. So yeah. that was yeah. incredibly useful for me as a yeah. 
as somebody yeah. studying writing. Right. I think that's you're a perfect reader in that sense because I'm trying to do what well Deleuze and Guattari did it, you know, in Mille Plateau in a thousand plateaus. They actually wrote a philosophy, right, which was in a different structure than the philosophy we expect, right? The structure and, and form we expect. And they destroy, Blanchot also destroys the, the, the separations of genre, right? Is Blanchot fiction? Is Sometimes he's, he's writing, it seems like an essay. And so all that groundwork is there. I'm not starting, I didn't, I'm not inventing it. I'm just trying to pursue it further. So when you say, who's my audience? Yeah, Blanchot. Derrida, Deleuze, you know, <laughs> I imagine them reading it and saying, and laughing or nodding or answering, you know, in some way. That, that's how I, I perceive it, yeah. You're less, you have a smaller audience, but it's a good audience. <laughs> it's an imaginary one. Yeah, you can really see a continuity with your work between these and some of the authors that inspired them, namely right. Franz Kafka, Samuel Beckett, right. especially the unnameable and the way he continues sentences for pages. It's very reminiscent right. in your work. You yeah. spoke earlier about not wanting to deceive your reader mm. and wanting to show them that you're actually trying to cause a certain emotion. That, that comes up time and again. The reader is strongly implicated in your work. Right. He's so addressed directly and invited to work with me in a text. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I hear how people talk about characters in a, in a book or, or writing, I see a lot of this. The techniques that are taught are like techniques that create an illusion of something that's not really there, right? So if my definition of the character in any novel is a noun in a dress, that's all it is. It's a noun, right? So if I have a character, Madame Bovary, if you really looked at Madame Bovary carefully, she's like two-dimensional at best because it's on paper. It's flat, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's the lines. So what the writer is doing is trying to fool the reader into thinking this character is more developed, more depth, more. But you see in your workshop how many times you or somebody in the workshop will be criticized because the character does something that is out of character, as they say. So, oh, he wouldn't do that. And my response to that would be, well, why not? People around me are constantly doing things I would never expect them so so that that argument that the character has to be consistent can't do anything that isn't already built into that that's what makes him to me one dimensional so might as well tell people yeah this is not a real person this is the character don't forget the character and if we learn to read that way we might learn to live that way too. And when somebody tells us, I'm going to help you with your money, we would think, well, wait a minute. You know, so it's a form of developing critical thinking. I remember when I was in the department, we got a visit one day from one of the administrators who came down um, to tell us that we had to uh, get more money from research in the, in the, in the department. Because when you're a teacher, when you're a prophet in the academy, you're constantly applying for grants to get to your house and uh, to do things, to projects. 
And part of that money goes to the university always. So they're making money when you do things and they're getting prestige and they're getting the university. They said our department, they were looking at the stats across the university wasn't getting enough money. And they said, for instance, the medicine are making millions, engineering are making millions, right? Business are getting, they have buildings that are being given to them and stuff. What are you guys gonna do in English? You gotta get some money here. And so we'll, the grants we get, you know, are nothing, they're peanuts compared to these useful uh, departments. So I said, well, our, our task is critical thinking, teaching critical thinking. Basically, that's what we're doing. And therefore, the more trouble our students make for you in the university, that should be how you qualify us at Quantify, our value compared to other departments, not, not by how much money we make, right? They didn't get it. So <laughs> writing is about that. For me, it's about yeah, the, the, uh, undoing those techniques. People say at the end of the novel, there has to be a kind of closing of the circle, or they say, well, this character has, has gone off the rails, is doing... So I said, okay, we'll figure out how this character could actually do this. You know, don't tell me I can't do it in that way. And readers aren't used to that. It's like jazz, for instance. I remember the first time a friend brought me to... I was in New York and a friend brought... I was very young. A friend brought me to a jazz concert, which was very hard bebop, okay? So it was something I'd never heard before. And it was, to me, I, he said during the break, he said, what do you think? I said, it's just noise. And he said, you're not ready yet. <laughs> it's your fault, you're not ready yet. And I've always remembered that because he was right. You know, It was just something I needed to listen to more carefully and more often instead of listening to AM radio at the time, which is bubblegum music. So if we read bubblegum fiction or you know bubblegum books constantly we're going to have trouble with with anything that's not like that that's different that's in some way more complicated or requires work like going to Godard films you know Jean-Luc Godard films we used to go to the film and sit there and bet how many minutes before the first person leaves the theater and when they did we'd applaud <laughs> They are leaving the theater. So you're, you're mentioning left bank film, Jean-Luc Godard, yeah. Hard, Breathless, all these incredible films. And we've seen a shift, and as you mentioned, towards neoliberalism, the impulse simply to value something based on how much money it makes. Do you right. view there has been more spaces for opportunity for creation in film, in books, do you feel that this oppressive structure is simply that, oppressing yeah. wonderful writers and creators? Right. I think it's both. I mean, I think the technologies have opened up a lot of possibilities for writers. You can do really different things now with writing, right? You could be doing writing that's visuals, and you can be doing it online. You can, I mean, there's, there's a lot of opening and movies, even movies, you can make a movie with an iPhone now, you know, you, you don't need a million dollars worth of equipment. But at the same time as you have that, you also have increasing control and increasing monopolization of uh, entertainment and, and art in the hands of 
big corporations and and so for young people starting out the temptation is there you know to make money and to be famous it's a big temptation so you have these two conflicting forces coming at you the desire to be free and the desire to be famous or work to be recognized or some so it's not simple uh, it's not as simple as saying one or the other is dominant i don't think it is right but i think they're both present as pressures on us i remember when the internet started i said i looked i said oh shit look we could have websites here people could be building their own websites and everything. and but now if you build your own website you're competing against websites that cost hundreds of hundreds of thousands of dollars to make and that are doing all sorts of beautiful things that you can't do on yours and so there's those two competing pressures it, all this social media is it making it more open or is it making it more closed are we being locked in i look at all the writers that i see on on facebook i have a list of well i have some in the novel there of the phrases they will use so excited to be reading tonight with or so honored to have this review of my book we're being taught this is the polite way to sell your stuff and for me that's a, a very big problem so i'm unable to do it that way right so i have to find other ways of doing it and uh, but I, but i'm not saying therefore social media is evil you know or is 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 the enemy or is destroying our children you know and all this stuff because that's not true there's also incredible powerful ways that is look what it did for the movements like black lives matter or occupy wall street or these kinds of things without social media would not would not be it took us when i was younger a kid it took us months to prepare a demonstration because <laughs> he had to get contact all these groups and people and now now they just send out a tweet and they're there you know there's a lot of forces conflicting and interacting and the lawyers would say you know stay on your toes and watch and see how you can intervene in one way or another to affect it some positive way to be in a movement of some kind i don't think you can do more than that can't prescribe the way that writing should go or what should happen to it but we can explore what happens when different forces intersect. Well, as we're kind of starting to wind down this interview, very unfortunately, because I'm really enjoying this talk, I, I really like your help just kind of cutting through the noise. Because we've been talking about Deleuze and lines of flight to the minority, the ones that aren't fully represented, uh, do you have any recommendations for any listeners of, of recent work that you've encountered that you don't feel is getting enough attention in this current structure? That's a good question. It's difficult for me to, it's difficult for me right now to say that. But I go, I go through different phases and I'm in a phase now where I, I haven't been reading a lot of uh, writing, of creative writing. I've been reading other things, right? Just studying other things. I'm studying uh, astronomy more now because of what I'm the project I'm working on. <laughs> so I, I get into a field and I I have to you know read a lot to because I don't understand it at all and figure out what's going on there. So I don't really follow that much, but there I mean somebody like Larissa Lai knows a lot more what's going on 
right now because she's plugged in more than I am. I'm out here in relative isolation in a lot of ways, uh, which is okay. It's a phase and I feel, I feel okay because it's helped me work. I'm not saying there are no, nobody's doing anything. It's lots of interesting work is, is, is happening. Just, I have to think, uh, and I'd have to go back to my, my bookshelf and look at all these books that I, you know, people send me books and I see a lot of interesting things when they do send them before I'd be able to, to really give a list of references. I'm, I'm not really good at bibliography, except for the project I happen to be work, working on. This is uh, something Deleuze said, actually, somebody asked him a question about a book that he'd written before. And he answered, well, I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> anything about it. He said, I, I, I finished with it. So I'm, now I, I'm doing something else. And everything I, I, I read and studied before, I've forgotten. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> a little bit like that, I guess. <laughs> I wouldn't want to try at this point to, uh, to list people. <laughs> Well, that, that's fair. I think through our conversation, we probably name dropped enough uh, with the critical theorists and other writers, as well as yeah. your book just gestures to so much that should be read. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with me it's today. Fun. And uh, yeah, on behalf of uh, Tea House Talks, uh, thank you very much for your time. This was a wonderful conversation. I look forward thank to you. talking with you again in the future. Thank you and, and good luck in your work. I'm Mark Herman Lynch, and you're listening to Tea House Talks. Tea House recognizes the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Abapne, Paul Meunier, Joshua Whitehead, Ryan Stern, Mark Herman Lynch, Xu Yin Yu, and Marjorie Wagunda. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at tiahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening.